Well, thank you for clicking on the podcast. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we are making our way through the book of Genesis verse by verse. In the last episode, we made it through 17 verses, which seemed to lead us down all sorts of interesting paths. And so I took that opportunity to briefly explore some of those paths. I mean, we discussed races, the death penalty, the rainbow as a sign from God, even mentioned the speed of light, which brings us now to verse 18. So verse 18 and 19 read, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Now we touched on this a bit in the last episode, insofar as that we are all related to Noah if you go back far enough. But from there, we're all related to one of his three sons, either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. So which are you most likely related to? Well, Shem is the father of the Semitic peoples, including the Israelites. Ham, the father of, say, the African peoples and two of the first great civilizations, the Egyptians and the Babylonians, as well as the Canaanites. And then Japheth, the father of the European peoples. Now, of course, there's a lot of interplay there and some blurring of lines, but that is the basic breakout. There's a more specific description in chapter 10 when we get to what is commonly called the table of nations. And so I'm going to wait until then to dig a little deeper. I would also mention here, notice how verse 18 throws in the fact that Ham was the father of the Canaanites. So here is sort of an introduction to the Canaanites who will prove to be a very immoral people reflecting the immoral actions of Ham, their father, as we're about to read about now. Verses 20 through 25 is where we're going to spend almost all of our time in this episode. So I'm going to go ahead and read 20 through 25. And so verse 20 begins, And Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack here. So first, we see Noah begins by planting a vineyard. At some point, he becomes drunk off of his produce. Noah gets drunk off of his wine. Now, there are some Christians who attempt to say that, look, the wine back then was merely grape juice. The problem with that is that Noah gets drunk. Now, I've seen a lot of people get drunk after drinking wine. But I've yet to meet anyone or see anyone get drunk off of grape juice. Furthermore, fermentation is a natural process of preserving. And there was no refrigeration then. I mean, the bottom line, this was indeed wine. But that's not an inherently bad thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wine in and of itself. The Bible tells us that wine is beneficial. You can read that in Judge 9, Psalm 104, Proverbs 31. Wine is also used as a symbol of blessing. 
can read about that again in Proverbs 9 and Isaiah and Matthew. Wine is even produced by Jesus himself at the wedding in Cana. I mean, this is where he turned water into wine. It was his first miracle recorded by John. So there's nothing wrong with wine. Now, getting drunk off of your wine, well, I mean, that's a different story. And there are so many verses instructing against drunkenness that I'm not going to belabor that point here. But verse 20 and 21 tell us that Noah lay uncovered in his tent and that his son Ham, quote, saw the nakedness of his father. And then he goes and he tells his two brothers. Interesting. Before the fall of Adam and Eve, in the beginning, they were unaware of their nakedness. And now here is Noah, after the judgment, in the new beginning, unaware of his nakedness. But this is a very difficult passage in Scripture. I mean, what exactly happened here? Well, there are different thoughts, different interpretations regarding this passage because it may not be as straightforward as you might first think. I mean, the straightforward, kind of a, the first thought reading is simply that Ham walked in and saw Noah naked. Then he went outside and he told his two brothers. Then they came and covered Noah. Then when Noah realizes, he pronounces a curse. But is it that straightforward? As I said, there are various interpretations of these few verses. But let me start with this. There are at least three other interpretations in addition to this straightforward way one might read this verse. Now, these three other interpretations you may have never heard, but they do have historical rabbinical support. So I'd like to go through these different interpretations just so you are aware that they exist. And the first interpretation is that Ham saw the nakedness of Noah's wife. And to see the nakedness of Noah's wife was the same as Noah's nakedness is the thought. Some believe that Ham actually slept with Noah's wife who would have also been his mother or his stepmother, and that Canaan was the offspring of that union, which is why you see Noah cursing Canaan. But Leviticus makes it clear that one way to understand the nakedness of the father is in terms of the nakedness of the mother. Leviticus also suggests that sexual relations with one's mother or stepmother can be described as, quote, uncovering the nakedness of the father. In the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament, there is support that, quote, uncovering nakedness or to see nakedness implies sexual activity. So that is one interpretation. The second interpretation is that Ham actually castrated Noah. In order to justify this interpretation, some will point to the fact that Noah had no more children. They will also point out that verse 24 says that, quote, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. So the text tells us that when Noah wakes up, he realizes that something's been done to him. As a result, he curses Canaan. And so they argue that, look, this cursing of Canaan, that's a bit too extreme if all that Ham did was walk in his tent and see him naked. A third interpretation is that Ham was involved in some sort of homosexual act against Noah, or that Ham commits sodomy against Noah. Again, some make the point that when Noah wakes up, 
he realizes that something has been done to him, and then he curses Canaan, which again, it just seems maybe a little extreme for someone who just looked upon their father's nakedness. Now, other more conservative interpreters argue that people who believe this are guilty of adding to the text and special pleading, as they argue that the text has uh, been purged of some of the more sordid details, uh, maybe in an effort to protect Noah's dignity. And still another interpretation is that Ham was guilty of looking at his father's nakedness. Now that Hebrew word used here for saw, when he says he saw his father's nakedness, can mean to look at searchingly. In other words, to inspect or to consider something. In other words, you're looking it over. You're checking it out. This is not an accidental or just some casual glance. And so if this was the case, then Ham is guilty of a, of a form of sexual voyeurism. Voyeurism of this sort violates one's dignity. It violates their privacy. But worse still, especially in that culture, this would have dishonored his father Noah, a man that he should have had great respect for. And if this was the case, then Ham actually makes it worse because he went out and he told his two brothers also. Which brings up a couple of more questions or scenarios. I mean, some believe that what Ham was doing was gazing upon his mother's nakedness, which, remember, can be described as the nakedness of his father, and that he was contemplating having sexual relations with her while she and Noah were both drunk and naked. He then goes outside to suggest it to his two brothers. Now, fortunately, his two brothers have more honor than Ham does. They thought it a sin to even see their mother or father naked, and so they, they get a garment, put it over their shoulders, and they walk backwards into the tent so that they would not see or be tempted in any way. In fact, Ham's two brothers sort of emulate God in that once Adam and Eve realized they were naked, they were ashamed and they hid themselves. And when they did, what did God do eventually? He covered them. Here, too, Shem and Japheth cover the nakedness, the shame of their father Noah. It does make you wonder, though. I mean, if Ham's sin was not castrating Noah and it was not a sexual violation against Noah, then how did Noah know what had been done to him? I mean, was there some sort of physical evidence that informed him? Or did he realize that maybe someone had come in and covered him and then he asked about it? Uh, maybe his two other sons, Shem and Japheth, simply told him. You see, where the scripture reads that, quote, Noah woke up and realized what had been done to him, that's the part that opens up the door on all the other conjectures and interpretations that we've gone through. But again, these are not just recently made-up conjectures. These have rabbinical support. Now, it doesn't mean that they're correct. It just means that we at least need to consider them. But whatever it was exactly that happened in this episode here, one thing we realize is that Ham absolutely did something wrong. Something so wrong that it resulted in Noah pronouncing a curse. But some interpretations, even though there may be rabbinical support for them, seem to be somewhat blurred still. I mean, I wouldn't be too dogmatic concerning any of these interpretations and simply realize that at the end of the day, Ham acted in a sinful manner, regardless of what it was that he actually did. And realize, too, 
How quickly after the judgment that humanity has fallen back into sin? It sure didn't take very long. You know, it is quite revealing to realize that Ham was witness to all that God had brought about, meaning the judgment, his grace and mercy in saving Noah's family, his promise to never again do the same. But what does Ham do at the seemingly the first opportunity? The same thing the Israelites did after seeing all the miracles God had performed in the Exodus from Egypt. The same thing that many who witnessed the miracles of Jesus did. They sinned. They forgot. They gave in to the desires of the flesh, the weakness in their spirit, the desires of their heart. At the first sign of difficulty, they gave in. At the first opportunity to satisfy the pleasures of the flesh, they succumbed. I can tell you this. If you give in at the first challenge or the first difficulty you face, you're not going to walk with God very long. Because this life is full of challenges. It's full of hardships. I mean, life is tough. Life is wrought with suffering and pain. I mean, I'm glad that our Lord didn't distance himself from that pain, but chose instead to be a part of it. I mean, Christ's suffering the death on a cross tells us that he can relate to our suffering, to our struggles and our pain. It tells us that he's not distant and cold and unable to relate with what we experience. No, our Lord is fully engaged and he has become a part of suffering for us. Verses 24 through 27. And when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Curse be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So again, Noah wakes from his drunkenness, and he realizes that something has been done to him. Now we've talked about the possibilities, but what about the cursing of Canaan? I mean, Canaan didn't do anything. Ham was the guilty party. So why did God place a curse on Canaan, Ham's son? Ah, but God didn't. What does the text say? It says that Noah cursed Canaan, not God. Now, it turns out that the Canaanites eventually become so perverse and evil that God will use the Israelites to drive them out of the land. I mean, the Israelites and Canaanites did indeed become enemies. But this curse spoken of here comes from Noah, not from God. You know, it may be one of those instances that people brought about out of their own emotions or desires, but which God allowed to serve his own purposes. Kind of like um, Joseph's brother selling him into slavery in Egypt, and then God raising Joseph to be the second in command behind Pharaoh. But also, the curse and blessings of all three sons fall to their descendants, not to them individually. In addition to the Canaanites, Ham's descendants include some of Israel's most bitter enemies, kind of like I mentioned before, such as the Egyptians and the Babylonians, the Assyrians. A couple of other comments on the curse of Canaan. You know, this verse was used by some in the past to justify black slavery. Now, these people argue that Ham was the father of the black race, and since he was cursed to be enslaved, then therefore they were cursed to be enslaved. Well, that's ridiculous. 
for at least three reasons. First, Scripture in no way even hints at Ham or the Canaanites being black. Second, Ham isn't the one who's cursed. Canaan was. And thirdly, God's not the one who curses Ham. Remember, Noah did that all on his own. So to build an argument based on something in Scripture that God was not even a part of, it's a fairly weak argument. That's just another example why you never take a single verse in Scripture and attempt to build your entire theology around it. Verses 28 and 29, closing out this chapter. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, if you have not listened to the episode where I covered, I believe it's chapter 5, and you wonder about Noah living to the age of 950 or how that's possible, I would encourage you to go check out that episode. But notice, from now on, the ages will begin to decrease rapidly until we get to the age God told us that the age now would not pass 120 years on average. And all you have to do is keep reading, and you're going to notice the ages begin to decline from this point on until they settle in into about what we see today. I will leave you with this. I've given quite a bit of thought to death, to our mortality. And the last time I checked, none of us are getting out of this thing alive. And I believe that regardless of what age you die, whether it's 55, 75, or 105, I believe you're going to look back at your life and say, wow, I just can't believe it went by so fast. You know, that's why they say life's like a roll of toilet paper. The closer to the end you get, the faster it goes. And we know that God has placed the upper limit of around 120 years to live. I mean, I'm aware of the biological systems involved there and the reasons for it and, you know, the chemistry and physics that come into play and the second law of thermodynamics that we're all bound to and results in corruption and decay. I get all of that. I mean, even Paul tells us in Romans 8 that even creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption. But why 120? But imagine if God had allowed, say, Hitler to live to be as old as Noah, 950 years. I mean, Hitler was responsible for murdering 6 million people. He died when he was 56. Or how about Stalin, the Soviet ruler until 1953? He's responsible for the murders of around 50 to 60 million of his own countrymen. He died when he was 74. So can you imagine how much more evil just these two men could have brought about if they had lived, say, 500 years? Well, what about 950 years? You see, death places an upper limit on how much evil a person can commit. It might be a lot, granted, but it is limited. But 55 or, or 75 years, it's just not enough time, you might say. Well, it is enough time to figure some things out. It's enough time to look at the world around you, to contemplate the, the meaning of life, and to wonder how the universe came to be in the first place, to think about God and morality and consciousness, to consider good and evil and the life and the, the history, the witness, the miracles of Jesus. You know, the Greek philosopher Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think he was on to something. 
And I pray that at some point in your busy life that you will stop or at least slow down long enough to consider the most important issues concerning God and the truth claims of Jesus. And that you undertake a serious effort to test them against any other worldview or ideology that has ever existed. You may be surprised at how strong Christianity comes out. As always, thank you for joining me, and until next week, God bless.